Well, hello there. It's Morgan Harper Nichols here, and welcome to today's show. I am pleased to have Mina B on the show today, sharing her valuable and helpful perspectives on mental health and wellness in her new book, Owning Our Struggles. As a licensed social worker, Mina B emphasizes the importance of wellness, not only as it relates to individuals, but also the collective. And in this episode, we talk about how to work through unrealistic ideals around positivity. We talk about cultivating hope through reflection and relationships. And I've just been really excited to share this conversation with you. So here is that conversation with my guest, Mina B. Well, hello, hello, and welcome back to the show. I have a guest with me today that I have, we've been following one another's work for some time, and we've, we've met via podcast world uh, once before. And yes, I would just like to welcome my guests and give you the opportunity to introduce yourself. Well, hi, Morgan, and hi, everyone listening. This is Mina B. I am a licensed social worker, mental health educator, and author of the book, Owning Our Struggles. Yes, and what a timely book this is. This is a book that there's sometimes like when I when I get a book, I'm like, I got to go get the digital version, too, because I like to highlight stuff and put all my little notes in. And this is one of those books that just there's so many helpful resources. And I would just love to know, you know, what uh, just as someone who's who's read the book, I feel like you do such a good job at 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 naming things that people may have a sense of in terms of things that they struggle with. But, oh, I didn't know that there was research around that or I didn't know that this was a, a deeper topic. So I would just love to know, like, what inspired you to to write this book in the way that you did? Because it's very, very rich and 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 educational and still emotionally resonant at the same time, which that is powerful and so, so needed. So I would just love to know, like, what inspired your journey to 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 write this book? Well, one, thank you for that wonderful feedback, because that was the goal. So it always feels good to hear people um, resonate with the work um, and how I wanted the work to land for people who would be reading it. So what inspired me to write the book is um, the year of 2020, actually. So I am a licensed social worker, as I shared earlier. So I always had a background in understanding community care and understanding our relationship with mental health to the wider world around us on a social level, environmental level, but also systemically and institutionally. And when 2020 hit, I'm sure a lot of us remember the year that it was. And so we got hit with the coronavirus pandemic, which is what I call a form of global trauma. That also was a year that Breonna Taylor and George Floyd were murdered. And I think that also brought up um, a lot of emotions around race in this country on an interpersonal as well as systemic Mm -hmm. level. And then that also was the year that there were a lot of hate crimes happening um, toward the Asian American community. And then we got hit with the loneliness epidemic that we are still currently living in three years later. So I remember the concept for the book came to me around the fall. It was actually like around October of 2020. So we had gotten through most of that year. And I realized that people needed a resource and a tool on how to integrate back into society. 
And one of the key themes I write in my book is we don't heal to exist in a vacuum. We heal to exist into society and integrate ourselves into society so that we can build supportive Mm -hmm. networks. And I think people needed a framework on how to do that. There are a plethora of resources available on understanding trauma, understanding how to heal trauma from an eye-centered perspective. So this is the issue or, or the experience I had. This is who the person or the thing that caused the trauma. And this is how it wounded me. And these are the tools that I need for my own self-regulation. Mm-hmm. But I think what was missing from the self-help market was the we-centered approach, Yes, which is we can't just stop at the I. We need to be doing that I-centered work of what are the experiences that I have faced? How has it impacted me? But we yes. also have to remember that traumatized bodies have the potential to traumatize other bodies. Mm-hmm. And so in the midst of you being in your hurt, in the midst of you being in your trauma, you also have to reconcile with the fact that you could be hurting people along the way. Mm-hmm. And it's great that you're in a therapy room now doing all this healing work. Um, but you also have to reconcile with the fact that there are people who you may have harmed to get you to where you are. And so I wanted to provide people with a framework on community care because we hear self-care a lot, which is that I-centered work and we need it, but we also need the we-centered work, which is being mindful of how my in, my my behaviors impact other people around me and being mindful of how my unhealed wounds, my trauma, and the things that I experience in life impacts my community. And mm-hmm. if we want to heal We need to heal as a community as well as individuals. I am so grateful that you talked about community care because the, and it's like, wow, it's in the title. I see it now. You know, even owning our struggles is because our struggles are are interwoven with one another. And I wonder, and I would just love to know your thoughts on this. I wonder if sometimes, because I think you say in the intro something about like instead of avoiding the process of healing, um, you know, the the hope is to encourage people to be able to embrace this process. So I would love to know what your thoughts on are about when it comes to this idea of healing. Do you think, because I personally feel very intimidated by that word naturally, my baseline is like, oh, that sounds like a lot of work. You know, <laughs> that's that's kind of where I've started at times. So And what you shared made me think about how maybe it's because of this kind of like I-centered approach at times that makes it feel harder for people. Like, well, I, you know, well, oh, dealing with all this is too much, is too much. But thinking about the community aspect of it. So I I guess what I'm asking is like, do you think that, that this, by putting it all on ourselves and kind of isolating, does that make it more challenging at times to even think about healing and growing? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think when it comes to healing, many people are familiar with this phrase, and it's something I share in my book, where you may not be responsible for all the things that have happened to you, but you are responsible for your healing. And I think self-responsibility creates this idea that you have to do it alone. Mm. And so as a human being, you can only have control over yourself. And so that is where the self-responsibility comes in, where you have to ask yourself, what do you want to gain out of life? 
What are your goals? Where are you when it comes to your level of motivation to achieve the thing that you want? Because you have agency and autonomy over you and no one else on this earth can tap into that and have agency over you. That's always going to be your own inner work. But I think what's often missing from this conversation is that you can have agency and autonomy over yourself and engaging the healing process through community. Um, And I think because we don't talk about community enough, we see self-responsibility as a form of hyper-independence. And so in order for me to heal, I have to be doing all of this work and it all falls on me. And I think that there are very little conversations around how self-healing is the bridge to community healing. And when you're, when you're engaging in self-healing, that involves people, that mm-hmm. involves connection, that involves having an active support system, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that we do have to normalize these conversations where we help people move from a place of hyper-independence to interdependence, where interdependence is when someone has a great level of self-efficacy and they are self-sufficient, but they are also self-sufficient in the process of having community, having support. And there's a healthy balance between knowing how to care for yourself as a human being and as an individual, but also having a great level of support in your life where you recognize when you need to outsource, you recognize when Mm -hmm. you need to tap into your supportive networks because you need advice, you need guidance, you need help. That is what interdependency means. And I think because we live in such a hyper-independent culture, when we hear the word healing, we kind of think of hyper-independence in the concept that I have to do it all alone. I can't yeah. ask for help. If I'm struggling, I have to suffer in silence. And I really want people to move away from that concept and move closer to utilizing people as a support mechanism, because mm-hmm. we're biologically wired to be in connection for a reason. And that is because innately we're not wired to get through life alone. Mm-hmm. Yes, I I absolutely am, am just finding a lot of similarities in my own work of how I talk about things, even from a creative perspective, because I, I've, I've noticed with a lot of our words that we use, like strength and courage, there is this kind of like, self-ownership that kind of takes that kind of gets attached to it and I've just been really interested about even in putting the word shared just before it so shared strength shared courage because it's like being strong isn't just about you being strong doing all of that you know on your own all the time so um yeah I I think that uh I think there's there's something that you you had that really I I'd never really seen it broken down this way and I I I was like this is so good (laughs) and you broke down you know toxic positivity and I was not expecting that next section of like oh well here's what it looks like to yourself oh like oh no like (laughs) Mina's calling us out (laughs) in the best possible way (laughs) um but I I think uh I I think there was uh and I'm, I'm going back to the page. I was like, I got to have my digital copy ready because I have have quotes (laughs) ready to go. Um, And it was in that section you talked about like, you know, the the self-imposed toxic positivity, what that could look like. And that could look like not allowing yourself to to feel sad or pretending to be happy. And 
oh, and, and telling yourself you must be strong. And all of that connects to this like, wow, we really can put all that on ourselves. And that's probably why it feels so hard. <laughs> a part of yeah. it, a part of it is that our, our language just is set up even to just make us put it all on ourselves. So yeah, I really appreciate you, you naming that. And is that something that you find, you know, in your practice that, you know, the way that people talk to themselves and how we talk to ourselves is, is a, is a part of this? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think that I find that sometimes when we have particular beliefs about who we are, um, that impacts the way we think and the way we maneuver through the world, which is why in chapter one, I break down after experiencing childhood trauma. Now it's important for you to identify your values and your beliefs because you can create values and beliefs rooted in your trauma and not realize that those beliefs are actually unhealthy. And I find that when it came to the concept of toxic positivity, we hear a lot regarding how people impose toxic positivity on others. So, oh, don't cry. You, you know, things are going to get better. Everything happens for a reason. You're going to get through this. And Mm -hmm. we kind of minimize people's pain. But I wanted people to really take a moment to reflect and say, well, how many times have you said to yourself, stop crying right now? Stop crying. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God, I shouldn't be crying right now. Mm -hmm. Right. Or I shouldn't be feeling this way. But you feel it instead of embracing that you feel this thing. You're saying, I'm not supposed to feel this right now. I shouldn't feel this way right now. And then you feel guilty for having a particular emotion. And that's what it looks like when we tell ourselves I'm supposed to feel good all the time. And I really wanted to share that in the book because I also want to rewire the way we think about healing Because too often I see people get very frustrated in their healing process because they think healing means feeling good all the time. Mm -hmm. They think healing means learning to master positive emotions to the point where you never feel fear, Mm -hmm. sadness, Mm -hmm. anger. And I'm sorry to break it to you, but there has not been an evidence-based model as of yet that shows people how to eradicate a feeling and never feel a particular emotion for the rest of their lives Mm -hmm. because it's not possible. Mm -hmm. It is a necessity sometimes to be able to feel fear, anxiety, because those feelings, as negative as they can feel at times, they can sometimes serve a purpose Mm -hmm. as well, right? Fear alerts us that there is a possible threat we need that, right? Yes. And we have to use discernment to know, okay, is what level of threat is this thing? Is it something mm-hmm. that I need to be really afraid of? Or is it something that I can, you know, engage in critical thinking, rationalize here and realize, okay, this isn't something to be afraid of at all. I, I can conquer this thing. Mm-hmm. And so I want us to just be mindful of the ways that we tell ourselves we're not supposed to be human. Because that's what self-imposed toxic positivity is. Don't Mm -hmm. feel this way. Don't cry. You're not supposed to have this emotion. And we beat ourselves up for not feeling happy all the time. Or we beat ourselves up for not feeling good all the time. And that's not, that's not possible. Yes, absolutely. And naming these things is so important because in, it can become so internalized in, in you, and you even get into some of the, 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 nuance of it of what it looks like you know the whole superwoman you know strong black woman trope and what that can look like for us with with when there is not just 
you know, there's like this base level of like, okay, yes, all humans can deal with it. But then there's like systemic reasons why that may be an issue as well. So, you know, I would love to know, like, what do do you have any any specific advice, you know, for for someone who is finding themselves like, okay, yes, I know that now, but there are these outside factors, um, you know, such as me, I really resonated with what you wrote about, you know, the strong black woman trope, because I, that, I didn't, I, it's so interesting, just side note about that. I, I was familiar with that for a while, but for some reason, it didn't really hit me how much it impacted me until 2020. And it was like a YouTube video I saw, and they were breaking down like the trope in, in films and, and it was like the first time I was like, oh, that, that does apply to me, I guess. <laughs> it was so, you know, that's even why I bring it up now, because it's like now, three years after that, I'm like, well, of course, I can <laughs> give you a bullet point list of all the ways it impacts me. But I would like to bring it up because I think that sometimes like even and this goes back to the community thing, like even as we start to learn and name these things that heal us, like talking about those details can be helpful. So, you know, are there any particular nuances that you would just like to name? Um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely asking as myself in that particular <laughs> section, but just anything for someone who's just like, I'm new to this, you know, but, and there, mm. I have these other factors that I have to consider. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is what makes it hard knowing that there are other factors that you have to consider. And I think that there are a lot of people who have difficult relationships with their organizations that they work at, right? Because I find that that shows up a lot in the workplace, the strong Black woman trope. Feeling as if I have to provide emotional support to everyone because everyone around me is helpless. Everyone around me creates this illusion that they are helpless. And so I have to step up. Mm -hmm. People put me in a corner to be that person to step up. If there is a tragedy that's happening, whether it's about Black lives or not, Black people generally are often the person who they feel the mic is supposed to be passed to so that you can speak up because we've been taught that Black women are assertive, Black women are strong enough to bear the brunt of all the negativities that are out there um, because we have the thicker skin to do so. Um, so even if it's something that we have no knowledge around, you still are the spokesperson for it because you exist in this world as a strong Black woman. So you can take it. You know, um, I often think about the different ways, too, that because it's a system that we have to engage in, sometimes you feel like you have to overperform. You feel like you can't let your guard down. There is no such thing as having a mental health day, because if I have one, people are going to judge me. People are going to think I'm incompetent. People are going to think that I'm not sufficient enough to do this particular job or meet my responsibilities. And so I do see how there are so much overlap in how even when we're trying to cultivate some semblance of peace in our lives, there are these additional systems at play that's rooted in bias um, that infiltrates pretty much everywhere we go in the world. Because I'm using the workplace as an example because it's something that we all engage in. But even when you're on social media or even if you're walking through a grocery store, you might find yourself put in a position where you have to be this strong Black woman um, for the people around you. And in my book, what I really wanted people, and I will say specifically Black women, to do is give themselves permission to not have the answers. Give themselves permission to get it wrong. 
give themselves permission to say, no, I can't do this thing. I can't be this person. I literally cannot be everything to everyone. And I also have permission to have ease in my life. Mm -hmm. I have permission to rest. I deserve it. And it's not something that needs to be earned. It is our birthright. It is every individual's birthright. But I also know systemically the way Black women are treated in this country, um, Mm -hmm. we still carry these particular um, ideologies about ourselves that's either rooted in internalized oppression or there are people who project these things onto us and we have to assert ourselves to the point where we can say no. This is something I refuse to engage in and I refuse to participate in this thing. And so I want people to just know that it's okay for us to rest Mm -hmm. and it's okay for us to recognize when we can't be at all because it's not possible. And we're going to wear ourselves down if we keep trying to be everything to everyone and if we don't allow people to show up for us, we're going to create these cycles where people also feel that things can't be done without us. And so I also want us to think about the cycle that that creates, where if you do consistently put yourself in the forefront of everything and say, well, I guess I have to be the spokesperson or I guess I have to step up and do this thing, it continues on that cycle. And Mm -hmm. at some point we have to say, you know what? I'm going to say no. And if it falls apart, I also have to trust that the people around me have the tools and resources to build so that things aren't consistently built upon my back. When I am not present at work, I hear these stories all the time. If I don't show up to work, work, the workplace isn't going to function. Are you the CEO? Are you the founder? Because if you're not, that is a very dysfunctional and chaotic cycle. The fact that I hear so many people, and this is people across the board, but especially Black women say, if I don't show up to work, if I take PTO, the system of work is going to erupt if I am not physically there. And that is problematic. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we have to say, well, you know what? I guess it's going to have to erupt. I guess it's going to have to fall apart. So people can realize you have the tools and resources to build a better system but you're choosing to make me the person who has to do it all. And I think that we have to sometimes say, you know what, I do have to take a step back. And if it if it falls apart, it falls apart. And I have to trust that people mm-hmm. will get the tools that they need to rebuild mm. without it mm. falling on me. Whew, that is so needed. And I'm just saying that as an exhale of like, yes, thank you. Thank you for naming that and the detail that you did, because it's so there's so much wrapped up in those phrases of like, I have to be the one to do it. I'm you know, it all falls apart if I if I'm not there. And that's something that I've had to deal with. And I've recognized it. And it's become even more of a of a area that I have to focus on now because I was diagnosed with autism, ADHD and sensory processing disorder. And that has revealed a whole new layer, knowing that I'm autistic now. And and when I decided to share that publicly, there were a lot of people who thought that I was immediately going to be able to educate them on what that meant in in a big way. And I just had to be very clear of like, I, I am offering what I can with what I have, but like, you know, in in kind of like a joking way, but I'm, I'm like, no, I'm for real. And saying this, I've had to start saying like, Some people have asked, they're like, well, why haven't you released like 
an autism resource. I'm like, because I'm busy being autistic. Like, it takes me a long time to do things. I'm like, I'm working on it. But I'm like, it takes me, you know, a long time to to get this stuff together. And there was a time where I felt very rushed. So that was like layered on top of this, like this strong black woman uh, trope that I was already living out in a big way. So I've had to spend a lot of time on that. So that's probably why that really stood out to me when, when you wrote about that. And, you know, one thing that we've talked a lot about is, you know, the concept of community and, and I will, I would love to just like know your thoughts on this. So I'm really interested in how like, certain images of what community is supposed to look like or a friend group or or support group, whatever it is, and how that can maybe sometimes make communities seem like it's not possible. So one example, one thing that I like to do is I like to type in a word like friendship on Google images and just look at the images that pop up. And one thing that I find very interesting when I see that is I don't see people that look like me (laughs) a lot of times when I look at, you know, and it's it's stock photos, but I think that there's something too. well, what are the most popular images that people have around community, around friendship, around support groups. So I would just love to kind of like a creative spin on this question. I would love to know, do you, if you had to like help somebody find like what their community could look like, I'm not so much talking about like specific people, but like do, do, should they be looking for rooms to enter into or, or certain spaces? Like, like, how would you help someone paint a picture in their life of, like, what this good community care looks like mm-hmm. for them? Yeah. Um, really great question. So to break this down, when I think of community, the first thing that comes to mind is a circle of support. And I'm going to break down what oh, that a circle. is. circle. Yeah. Yes. That's good. Um, a full circle of support. Mm-hmm. Because within that circle, we have four different domains. The first domain within a circle of support is your circle of intimacy. Your circle of intimacy is generally those very intimate connections you have in life. So normally we will put our family there. However, I do want people to know that sometimes your family is not safe. And so you get to decide who you feel belongs in your circle of intimacy. Our community can be our family. I have people in my life who I call uncle, auntie, mom, and they're not even related to me through blood. They're not. These are people I grew up around, but they have had such a prominent role in my life that they have become family and they belong in my circle of intimacy. So that's the first domain. The next domain is your circle of friendship. And this is important because friendship falls on a spectrum. Everyone you meet is not your friend. And I think it's important for people to reconcile with that because I think we live in a culture where a lot of people are struggling with the concept of friendship. And I think social media is kind of playing into why a lot of people struggle with friendship because Mm -hmm. now we're living in a culture where there's a lot of pseudo friendships where some people think that if, if I interact with you a lot online, Or if you're also an influencer in the same industry as me, we automatically have a sacred connection. And that's not true, (laughs) you know? And I think it's important for people to know that friendship falls on a spectrum. Every friend you meet starts off as a stranger and they move their way up from acquaintance to 
close friend to best friend and even to being a soulmate, you know, someone who you have such a sacred bond with that, again, that person is so close to you, they fall into your circle of intimacy because they're like family. But I know, for example, that if you're my acquaintance, if I were having a child, I'm not going to ask my acquaintance, will you be the godparent to my kid? I don't know you right? We've gone mm-hmm. to brunch a few times. We've done things a few times, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you've entered into my sacred intimate space for you to be given such a prominent role over my kid's life. Now, would I ask that of a best friend or a soulmate? Yes, I would, right? And that also helps us to understand boundaries and expectations. Because I think since people see friendship on the level of, if I meet you and I like you and we seem cool, you're automatically my friend. And so now I'm expecting things of you where the other person is saying, well, the reason why I'm not reciprocating it is because you're treating me like a close friend when I only see you as an acquaintance. So mm-hmm. reciprocity is very important in any relationship. And I think reciprocity helps us to know where we are on that spectrum of friendship. There are people Mm -hmm. in my life who I talk to every single day because they are my closest, closest friends. And there are people in my life who I literally hear from them once every three months. That doesn't mean that they're terrible people. It doesn't mean that there is no relationship at all. But we both have recognized that we fall into the circle of acquaintances with one another. So therefore, there is no expectation that this person is going to be asking me to do something with them every weekend, or we're going to be socializing all the time. We're content with knowing that I reach out to you every now and then, and you reach out to me every now and then. It's reciprocated. So Mm -hmm. I want people to be thinking about that when they think of their circle of friendships. Now, here comes a circle of participation, which is very important because your friends come from your circle of participation, Your circle of participation is pretty much the networks that you participate in that allows you to meet people. The number one network we participate in is going back to the concept of work. You have colleagues. And so there are a lot of people who their colleagues have become a best friend, right? This is is an area where we have camaraderie. And this is an area in my life where I'm frequently exposed to this person We're always working together. We're team building together. There's vulnerability. And maybe there's an opportunity here for that relationship to flourish and become more than what it is. I will also hear people saying, I met this really good friend at mommy and me class. So I will listen to stories of mothers who will say, I met this person who I have play dates with because I went to a mommy and me class or I went to a single parenting class. And in this particular area where I participate in, I met a connection who now falls in my circle of friendship. When I'm in school, right? So you see where I'm going with this, Mm -hmm. right? We all have to think about what are the networks we participate in. And the reason why this is also important is because as I say this, some people might be reflecting and saying, you know what? I don't participate in anything. And Mm -hmm. I feel very lonely. I feel very isolated. I don't have people. And so when people say to me, Mina, how do I make friends as an adult? The first thing I want to know is, what is your circle of participation? How are you putting yourself out there where you are meeting people? Because unfortunately, especially with the world 
changing in 2020 where we're working remotely, a lot of us are leaving the house less. And again, mm-hmm. the less we leave our the less we leave our homes, I think a lot of us are building some of these pseudo relationships online where we are equating friendships with the relationships we garner with people on the internet. And sometimes those relationships can be real, but if those relationships are not moving to in-person and creating some sort of human-to-human interaction, you still are going to struggle with loneliness, you know? And so I think that it's important for people to be reflecting and saying, if I want community and I feel like I don't have it, or I feel like I want to continue to cultivate community, what are some spaces that I can participate in with people who are like-minded individuals? Do I want to go to a cooking class? Because I love cooking. That would be the best place to possibly meet new connections, right? Because we have that in common. Do I want to go to a pottery making class? Do I want to go on meetup.com? I used to do this years ago before my book came out and I would find writing groups and I met Mm -hmm. a whole community of writers, right? And so this is something I have in common with people. Do I love poetry? I can go up on meetup, go on meetup.com. There are so many apps available as well. Like on Bumble, you can use the friendship feature, and find someone who, do you like going to bars? I'll go with you one day. Do you like going to museums? Let's do it together. So that is what's very important. If we're not participating in certain networks and building social capital from there, then we are going to struggle in the concept of finding community because, hey, that's the key word, finding it. You do have yeah. to find it. You have to play a role in cultivating it. And then the next level that's very important when it comes to community that a lot of people overlook is your circle of exchange. This is the last domain within your circle of support. And your circle of exchange is your paid and professional networks. When you think about your community, think about how many hospitals do I have in my community? How many therapist offices are there available in my community? How many outpatient programs are there available in my community? Um, what systems where if I need systemic support, what's available in my community where I can call up a doctor and I don't have to go to a different zip code? I have that support right there. That also makes up your community. So Mm -hmm. I want people to be thinking about community, not just from the context of our interpersonal relationships, but also when we think of our social infrastructure, are there parks available so that I can walk more or be more in tune with greenery and nature? Is there a high social infrastructure where, like I shared earlier, there are resources available in that community so that I can get my basic needs met? as a human being where if I'm struggling and I'm sick, I can actually go to a doctor or an urgent care that is available to me. Um, There are grocery stores, there are parks. So that is another part of our circle of exchange where it's those paid and professional networks, but it's also the systems that are involved to helping people flourish in life. Mm, Yes, you laid that out so well, and I'm so glad this is recorded so people can listen and, and you know, rewind and really listen to that because naming those different naming those different groups is so important because it can feel so overwhelming. It's like, well, now I got to go enter out into the world and figure all this out. But, you know, you're breaking it into sections and showing that, it's, well, it's different work that's happening in different places and it can grow in different ways. And one thing that that outer circle that you're talking about, that's something that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about because 
in terms of I've lived in very pedestrian friendly cities that I could walk around, but I've also lived in front and I'm from more kind of suburban sprawl where there are no parks like you can't you don't just stumble upon a park. (laughs) So one thing that I have realized is that that even just naming these things, though, now it helps me know what the needs are in this community, not just for myself, but for others, too, for the next generation, my child. So I think it's so important to name these things because it kind of goes back to what we were originally talking about at the very beginning of like, it's not just about us. So it's like, and, you know, it's like that. It's like when people say, and I say it too, and it's true, like you're not alone. Sometimes I can feel like, oh, okay, yeah, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's said so much, but it really is that. And, and what you shared there is like, no, you're not the only one who's trying to find your way through this and trying to find ways of not being alone. We're not alone in that either. And something that I've done, because I work from home, I work for myself, so I don't have colleagues like that, and I, I'm not really... I'm not in the pedestrian city anymore, so I don't see a lot of people in places like I used to. But one thing I've found is exactly what you said when you're talking about your interest. And, and I've done the meetup.com thing, and that works. It really does work. So I just wanted to name that for anybody that's like, I don't know, I've never tried that. I'm somebody who mm-hmm. works works at home, and I'm a parent, and I have, and it's harder for me to get out. But what you're saying, I have lived that, and it's true. I'm, I have like interest in video games and computer arts and I have found people all over the world and some of them we've met in person, some we haven't yet, but it's like, oh, this is so special. Like it gives so much hope. So that's a long way of saying of like <laughs> you just provided a multidimensional <laughs> framework of, of, of hopeful interaction that can lead to healing and community and oh, I'm so glad like as a visual person, I'm so glad you gave those circles because it's that that really helped tie it all in together. So, yes, well, I would just love to know, you know, just kind of uh, just, you know, coming to a close. I would just I, one thing that you you illustrate so well in this book toward the end are our exercises and talking about journaling and meditation. And I would just love to know, like, for the person who might feel intimidated by that, you know, it's, it's, this, and this is the thing I have to remind myself all the time. Cause I, I've been journaling my whole life. Like I've been journaling since I was eight years old. I'm very proud of it. It's very few things that I've kept up <laughs> as long <laughs> as that. And so sometimes I forget, you know, when I'm talking to other people, that's not everybody's practice. Not everyone's done that. Not everybody feels like that's something they could do. So with that in mind, I always like to keep those people in mind. I would love to for you to do you have anything that you would just share with people who are just like okay I want to try this I want to try journaling I want to try meditation but I don't know what's for me and I've tried things in the past but it doesn't really work or any of those kind of you know resistance moments what would you say to that to that person um well a few things I think one it is okay if certain modalities don't work for you you know, this is mm-hmm. this is why there's a plethora of resources and therapeutic tools available. And I think that sometimes when we're not sometimes, most of the time when we're healing, your job is to figure out what actually works for me, because everyone on the Internet is saying to do journaling. And when I do it, it's just so boring. It's not mm-hmm. it's not therapeutic. It actually makes me feel really anxious. And I want people to be OK with that. <laughs> you know, I yes. think sometimes, yeah, oh, like yes. I think yeah, we absolutely. hear these things often <laughs> and we're like, oh, man, if I if I don't like it or if it's not sticking, is something wrong with me? I want to mm-hmm. normalize there are just going to be certain things that are not for you. 
I will say I encourage mm-hmm. people to ask themselves, what is the way that they feel they learn best? Do you learn best yes. when you are engaged with your mind or do you learn best and feel more relaxed when you're engaged with your hands? Because I mm-hmm. think that sometimes we fail to recognize the areas of interest that we have and how that also is connected to our own sensory input, right? And how that's Mm -hmm. also connected Mm -hmm. to the different ways that we learn. I am someone who, depending on the topic, I love to watch TED Talks more than I love listening to self-help books. Even though I do it, Mm -hmm. I'm the type of person who, if you can tell me, read the book or the person is going to hold a conference and they're going to do a talk about it, I'd rather go see them in person because I love the human to human interaction. And that's the way I love to learn. You know, if someone says to me, do you have a you have an opportunity to journal this out or color and draw and do art? I'm going to do art. <laughs> right. And so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want you to be thinking about the ways that you find relief and what helps to regulate your nervous system? Does engaging yes. your mind where I'm the type of person who always wants to read? Or do you want to utilize your hands in some sort of way? And I also think that when it comes to just figuring out what's for us, um, giving ourselves permission to just try different things, even the journaling option Um, I write in my book, instead of writing in a traditional journal, audio journal. And so many people are like, Mm -hmm. what the heck is that, Mina? And I'm like, one of the things I share with my clients is literally to just talk out loud and record yourself. And the same way you would listen to a podcast recording, sometimes you might want to listen to yourself talk so that you Mm -hmm. can pick up on discrepancies in your thinking that you may not pick up when you're in your head and you're in your mind, or sometimes if writing it out just feels like too much, you can be on the go, you can be in your car, and you can just be talking to yourself, normalize talking to yourself. Yes, I've (laughs) been doing it for four years. Yeah, I've been doing audio journaling for four years, and it's become, yeah, it is equally the same as writing on a page Exactly, exactly, you know, and it can be so cathartic. And when you actually take the time to hear yourself, you can challenge yourself. You can now mm-hmm. engage in rational thinking because you hear yourself saying something the same way if we heard our friends yes. or someone we love saying something that you're like, you know what? I want to challenge that as a friend because yes. I love you. Yes. We can do it to ourselves. Like it I works. love myself and I realize, <laughs> oh man, why did I just say that out loud? That mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense. So those are some ways that I think that we can um, find what works for us when we're trying to heal. Absolutely. Oh, I get so excited about this nuance because it's so true. I love how you mentioned the TED Talk thing. So I'm the opposite of you. I in that mm-hmm. way, I have to read it first. And then Gosh. I go and look for a video or a podcast that they did. But I'm not it's not going to click for me unless I read it first. But that's something that's very important to know about myself. Because you like if like you said, like some people might be like, I, I just can't get into any of these books. It's like, well, you might need an event. You mm-hmm. might need to go see and hear and talk and hear other people sharing their stories. And that's totally valid. There's not like one way of doing it. So Oh, I get <laughs> I get so excited about all those nuances because I think that is a and that's where community is so valuable because like once we start sharing our stories, like it's okay to hear how someone else says something I'm like, oh, I actually I actually do the inverse of that. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually need the exact opposite. And when I figured that out, that freed me up so much. So, you know, mm-hmm. I'm just backing up what you're saying because I'm now able to if I'm able to read if I'm reading something, I know how. 
I know myself enough now that how to modify, adapt so that I can that I can engage with it. And that's such a crucial part because it's so easy to just put it all on ourselves that we just got to fix it and figure it out, you know, in this very easy way. And it's it's complex, but it's possible. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that is what I take away from your work is like addressing these complexities, but they're possible and you're not alone. So thank you for the work that you do. And I just wanted to, I'm just so excited to talk to you today because (laughs) I was just like, I'm like, highlight that, highlight that. Um, (laughs) There's just so, so much good stuff here. So with all that in mind, you know, is there just anything else that, that you would like to, to, to leave, you know, anyone with when it comes to, you know, finding or connecting with your work and, and what you do in the world? Yeah, I mean, I would love for people to connect with me off the show. And so you can head to my website, www.minab.com. And Mina is spelled M-I-N-A-A-B.com. On my website, you can also sign up for my newsletter, Mindful with Mina, where I give people resources on how to build and cultivate healthy relationships. And you all can also find me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at the name Mina B. Awesome. Well, as someone who follows Mina, yes, I'm I'm grateful again for what you do and what you share in the world. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you, Morgan. Thank you again to Mina and thank you for joining me here for today's episode. And before we go, I would like to leave you with a question. You can either journal about this or carry it with you as you move through the day. What does community mean to you and how has that changed over the past three years? What does community mean to you and how has that changed over the past three years? Thank you so much for tuning in and you can find all of those links to Mina's book, Owning Our Struggles and Her Work, and the link in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. I'm Morgan Harper-Nichols.